Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Well, here he is, Spike Jones. Okay. And David, and David O. Russell. David Russell. Thank you guys for coming tonight. Um, so David wanted to sit on this side, um, which is really going to mess up all my questions. It's, it's thrown, I was prepared for him to sit on this side, but I'll, I'll try to do my best, David. Um, the, uh, so thank you guys for coming. I, uh, David's a good friend of mine, so I'm happy to be here and celebrate his, his, uh, his work with you guys. Um, the uh, and he's much better at these than I am. So he's uh, he's going to be very entertaining and funny and smart and probably move you and inspire you. Um, so David, I, <laughs> you have to no <laughs> pressure though. Okay. Um, so um, so you, you this is your fifth film, and uh, so you, now I say that's officially a body of work, right? I think that's five. Is it? Yeah. That's good. Uh, <laughs> and. Uh, what, uh, what, they're all really different films. I, I thought we'd start off sort of talking generally, but they're all very different films. And, uh, and, um, but what do you think, looking back at it, uh, what do you think unifies all, the, all your films? Uh, I don't know. Maybe um, what, I, what, my, uh, what I look for, what I listen for. You know? I think we all pick different things. Right? You would pick different things. I'd pick different things. Like this movie was going to be made by Darren Aronofsky, and he picked very different things than I would have picked, and he would have made a very interesting film. I think he's a great... Is it, you want one of these? I think he's a great filmmaker. And... Um, yes. <laughs> now I'm not going to get one. Now, they're gonna go, now I'm not even going to get one. Just get me one before they... Get, get, you, can, you know what? I'm going to give this to the audience. This back to... It's going to take a little handful. <laughs> Don't say I never gave you nothing. <laughs> so I don't know. So just the things that I look for, the things that I think are funny, the things that I think are emotional. Uh, like with the fighter, you know, I um, I think I've learned a lot. I'm sure you feel that way too. You know, you kind of learn a lot about what interests you, and it also changes over the years. You know, and I would say right now, what interests me the most is something that's very real and emotional and raw, but also kind of fascinating in a way that certain characters or people can be. You know, you know it when you see it. You know, you're mm-hmm. like, that's an amazing person or that's an amazing character. That is somebody I could watch or look at or listen to for a long time. And so that's what interests me the most right now as a filmmaker. Is, is what? People, like, like characters that kind of make my mouth hang open. I'm like, who are you? You know, like when I saw this family in their photo album... The mother, you know, with the sisters, and the Darren script didn't really have the mother and the sisters as much, or the girlfriend. The women were much smaller, and it was much more dark about Dickie's dark crime stuff. And um, I, when I got to know the family, I saw that was really only one part of the story. And what really fascinated me about the story was I'd never seen was a mother who was as strong as that, who had done this with that gang of sisters and with the girlfriend, you know, who who's so tough. 
you know, and the impact, how they were with these men, and just a world, you know, just right away you're like, oh, this is a world that is really interesting to me. And, you know, people call it dysfunctional and all that, and that was a word they threw around with spanking the monkey. I don't like that word so much. I think that it's, uh, everybody's dysfunctional. Would you look at Raging Bull and go, those are some dysfunctional people, you know? No, you just go like, those are amazing people. And I like, and I think what I'm most proud about with this film or is like with some of my favorite films, you can just flip around and you go, oh, this is good. You know, you want to listen to this. Oh, I want to listen to this. You know, when you just see how the people are behaving and they're just behaving certain ways. And so if, if right now you're interested in fascinating characters. In, in your last movie, Huckabees, what do you think was the central thing you were interested in or inspiring you? I was trying something a little more conceptual in that, something that, um, in retrospect, I wish I had made more visceral. You know, and I think the more the parts of it that I like best are the more visceral parts that, with Mark and 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 uh, Jason, um, and also I don't know I don't know yeah I think I was more interested in comedy too at that time I thought I I was more interested in comedy. How come? I don't know. Coming off of Three Kings, I don't know. I did this movie that was very heavy or heavier. That even though I always have to see comedy in things, things to me that are always funny and sad. That's what interests me the most. The um. Uh, yeah, the uh, I think in Three Kings especially, but kind of all your movies, you know, this one included, you jump from you you shift tone very, you you shift tone in these major ways, but very effortlessly. Also in Three Kings, it goes from the sort of all the guys hanging out to things that are very you know dark and serious with Saeed, the the, inter, the interrogator, and then going to these very absurd things with Jamie Kennedy and Nora Dunn, and. Uh, um, why? Why? <laughs> no, but anyway, can't you do make this easier for me? And just like, <laughs> no, I got it. That's we got it. I'm, I got gotcha. you. I got it. Uh, um, I I think what is most interesting to me is. Uh, is when I get grabbed emotionally, you know. So I guess that's a, I don't know, maybe that, I think that's how things happen in real life, too. I think they happen that way. They are both things at the same time. Um, even in your show Jackass, you know, I mean, you have somebody leave a baby uh, in a baby carrier on a roof of a car, which from one, you know, there's like three angles of that, you know. One is the people watching Jackass who are laughing at the people who are freaking out about it. Two is the point of view of the people who think there's really a baby on the roof of that car. Um, three is my father who thinks it's just re- he's just mad at the whole thing. Um, he <laughs> doesn't know why you did that. <laughs> and, and there's nothing I could do to, to convince him? Uh, you can try to convince him. He doesn't like that kind of humor. Um... <laughs> And why do you, how do you think what what makes like how do you think you make it work in terms of shifting tone? I think the main you have to have emotional traction because I think some of the trouble you can get into is when you're not sure which way it should be, and I think sometimes that's okay, but I think sometimes that's just a cop out or you're not committing enough or you haven't you know decided enough and I think I believe in being firmly planted now in you know your emotional point of view um, I think that uh, um, what, so uh, should we talk uh, we could go through in order of your movies and 
talk about how old you were, what music you were listening to, and what kind of person you were. Okay. <laughs> so Spanking the Monkey was around, what, 92? Is that right? Yeah, 93, we, we made it. I was in my early 30s, and uh, I was listening to Nirvana, and uh, that's an interesting question. Nirvana, um, and uh, this band the, uh, that's in the movie, Morphine, and uh, Lonigan, Mark Lonigan, who was related to those guys, all that kind of intense, which kind of was reflected in the movie, you know what I mean? We, I don't know what it was. We came out of the 80s, which were all poppy, and all of a sudden it was really attractive to be heavy, you know, and to be um, kind of unflinching. And, and, uh, and I remember I, uh, I had written a movie. I, I, you know, I just, we all had such different paths into this, you know. Wait, how many people have seen Spanking the Monkey, by the way? Yeah, all right, good. About, about half. And just maybe just briefly, it's about a, 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 uh, he's in college or just got out of he's college? In college? He's in college and he comes back for the summer to stay with his parents, and it's about the dysfunctional relationship <laughs> between him and his parents. <laughs> no, no, I mean, interesting relationship. <laughs> Uh, and there's there's quite a bit of um, tension hmm. between the mom and the son. <laughs> so go ahead. I want to see where you're going with this. Keep going. <laughs> well, I don't. I want to see, for the people that haven't seen the movie. I don't want to give away what happens. What happens? You can give it away. You think? Yeah. Do you want me to? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they get it on, you know. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there was always a longer version of that film I wanted to do. Don't you often have this? I mean, where you think of other versions of the film, where you could have done it differently. And, so, and um, I was like, if they just, if, they, if you went even further with that, and they had the sex earlier, and he was like walking around in his dad's robe and slippers with a pipe and stuff, and he really got into the role more, you know? And they, and they went to cocktail parties and stuff like that. <laughs> Someday, we'll make that. Um, you know, what's really funny about that is my son, who you know, is uh, 16, and um, I kind of always dreaded him ever seeing that film, or, you know, because it's a very uncomfortable film, you know, I, call, I used to call it a feel-bad film, you know, because it's like, and, and, and the environment, you know, we had a crew of 30 people that were prisoners up in upstate New York, the only way we got them to do it for no money, we kept them hostages up in upstate New York in a motel, and... Um, you know, the, everybody just, the mood was so tense on that set because it was such uncomfortable material, you know, and I was the one responsible for it, you know, so you kind of feel bad, you know. Um, but he really wanted, he watched the film, he snuck and he saw it on his own and he, and he loved it, you know, and, um, and then he, and we had a movie night recently with those projectors you can put your DVD in, the thing I want to give you. You don't have it yet, do you? No. Okay. I won't. All right, good. <laughs> so, uh, for tonight, we'll get you one of those. So, uh, we're, and he's like, he wants, I wanted to watch, you know, like the Royal Tenenbaums, or, you know, I wanted to watch something that was felt a little more How many fun. times have you seen the Royal Tenenbaums? A lot of times now. Like probably 50, right? A, more than that. Wow. Well, this is, well, the thing is, see, I have this Ford Escape that has a uh, TV screen in it, you know, the, I, and, uh, and uh, when I went to valets, they would say, is that custom? And I would say, what are you talking about? They would say, the TV thing, is that custom? I say, no, that came with the car. They go, but it's not supposed to work when you're driving. 
I said, well, I don't know that. Nobody told me that. It just works, you know, and I, and I watch movies. So, so he drives around L.A. LA <laughs> with Royal Tenenbaums playing all the time, and he just like... <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of traffic. But that's an interesting example because that's a film that when it first came out, you know, we were all... We were a little bit of a group with Wes and everybody and Sophia, and, and uh, Wes shared that script with me when it came out, and I didn't really get it, you know, when I read it, you know. Um, I, was like, I was like, Wes, I don't know if you know, there's no 375th Street in New York, you know, I'm from New York. <laughs> and he was like, no, I'm making up New York. And then, and then when I saw the film, I still didn't really get it. I thought it was precious, and I was a huge fan of Rushmore. There was no bigger fan of Rushmore. I realized we're straying far, far. <laughs> uh, we'll loop back. Um, uh, and uh, the funny thing about it is how your feelings can change about cinema. So if you don't like any of my movies, just give it 10 years. Uh, just because, because then 10 years later, no, I'd bring it back to me somehow. T t 10 years later, uh, my son loved it. We're back to my son. He loved it. He loved it. <clears throat> Which, you're talking about? Yeah, he loved the Royal Tenenbaums. And I, and I got to tell you, I just fell in love with it. And I, just, and I watch it, and I just see so much brilliance in it. I think it's Gene Hackman's greatest performance. And it plays constantly in my car. So... Uh, how do we get on to oh, that? Spanking the monkey. Oh, then, then he showed me he wanted to watch that. And I said, oh, I don't want to watch that. You know, that's just going to be horrible for about 500 reasons. <laughs> and, he, and he said, well, let's watch it. So we watched it. And like the first half of it was like just such a horrible, uncomfortable experience for me. Squirming, grody. Because, be just because the emotional content, it's gross. And it's just, you know, it's just gross emotional content, you know. And, and, and then also because it's your first film, so you're just every single... Um, novice performance thing that happens on the part of the actors that I didn't catch as a director, uh, every sort of uh, awkward camera thing or the way it was shot or edited or, you know, of course, I can see 10 minutes that can come out of it. You know what I mean? So, you know, that's too long. That's too indulgent. That's indulgent, indulgent, indulgent. You know, so you're just cringing, you know, looking, being, forcing you to look at some of your mistakes, you know. Yeah. Uh, but the second half of it, I'm happy to say, it works. It's like an, a mechanism that works. You know, even with all those mistakes and all the grody material, you know, it works because like halfway through, I was really engaged in it and it functions as a mechanism. The, you know what I'm the saying? The tension of it? I remember yeah. the, ten the, <clears throat> the tension of it is really intense, that part where you kind of think, no, it's not going there, but it's kind of going there. That's like the dad goes out of town or something and it's really like a good half an hour that's just so... And then, then, the, then another 20 minutes after it goes there that uh, you're in still in shock. <laughs> and uh, so what was it like watching it with your son? And the reason, well... <laughs> no, well, at the end of it, I was, I was okay. I liked it at the end of it, and so it was all happy for everybody. It was a win for everybody. But I also, of course, completely realized why he liked it, you know, which is why if you have kids, you know, it's like you will come back as your own worst nightmare that you were. You know, because my parents, of course, hated that movie, you know, and it was like they felt why? like I, I threw that, why I couldn't figure out why. And I remember when I was making Three Kings, my mother said to me, uh, uh, what's this one about incest again? You know, and I said, and I said, no. I said, yeah, it's about incest in Iraq, in the Gulf War and, and masturbation in the Gulf War. Um, but I realized that he loves it because, you know, he was into, he's into being an anguished adolescent. You know what I'm saying? He's, like, really into that. You know, you don't understand. You don't understand how lonely and horrible it all is. And so, you know, that horrible, anguished feeling, that was dialed right into that movie. And that's funny, when I saw The Graduate, which is a very important movie to me, 
and being a parent now of a teenager, I actually, for the first time when I saw The Graduate recently, saw it from the parents' point of view. Which you know, was what? I was like, oh, just get off it. What's the big fucking deal? You know what I mean? You're making a fucking whole opera here about, oh, they want you to get a job. Oh, geez. What a horrible society it is. It's just such a horrible society. You poor, oppressed, middle-class guy. Run away. I hope you can run away. And I worshipped that movie for like for 25 years. And, and do you not like, worship it anymore? No, no, now I see it from the parents' point of view. <laughs> <laughs> I worship the filmmaking and the performances and all that. But I don't identify with him so much the way I used to. And so, <clears throat> Spanking the Monkey, uh, what kind of, what, 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 I forget, what was the question? I don't question? remember. The maybe. question was like, what kind of person were you when you made that? Or, Probably what? more like, you know, a little bit more poor me. What, poor a little me. bit more poor me, you know, and I did because I had a day job and uh, I was very alienated from my family. You know, I went through one of those with certain families. You have to go through that thing where you don't talk to them for a year because they're just like. How many people did that? A handful, a handful. Okay, okay we're a minority. Okay, <laughs> so I'm glad to see everybody's healthier. That's good. <laughs> That's healthier. Um, you know, but it just. Uh, my mother, you know, is a little bit like Alice in The Fighter. You know, for, and I love her. God rest her soul. I love her. And, she, and my son actually made me love her more because he's so much like her. You know, that I started to understand her more through him once um, she had passed away. But she gave me all that great stuff from Brooklyn. You know, and she also lived here in Astoria for a while. And uh, all that, like that line in the movie was right from her. You know, like she could take your legs out in the middle of an argument. You know, like you think you're arguing about one thing and then she suddenly brings up that you owe her money. <laughs> And all of a sudden, you're like, wait, what happened? Wait, what happened? And you're like, I was winning this argument, you know, and now I'm, now I'm out. I uh, can't remember where I was going with that answer. So poor me, it was 90, poor 93. Me, poor me, not talking to my parents. Oh, I had a day job, was kind of angry and frustrated because I couldn't get going. I was trying to figure out how to make films. I had various jobs. I taught an SAT class. I was a bartender. I had a day job at an office, you know. And I uh, was making these short films, and I got, get, been given. I brought two short films to Sundance, and uh, the first one I had no idea what I was doing, you know. And you know, and um, and I remember I, I got this group of kids. Sally Menke, who just died, Quentin Tarantino's editor, um, produced it. Like this group of older guys who had gone to NYU. Like I got them like a resource, you know. And then they were going to help me show me how to make a movie, and um, that movie went to Sundance even though I didn't know what I was doing. What's and that called? That's called Bingo Inferno, uh, which is about a mother who's obsessed with bingo. Because I'd run a bingo parlor in Maine. I was a community organizer um, in a town like the one in The Fighter, in, in like these New England towns where you would improve housing. I was into the do-good business, you know? That's what you did in your 20s? Yeah. Like, my parents were like, wait a minute, you know, we clawed our way out of Brooklyn and Manhattan to the suburbs, and now you're going backwards, you know. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to be an artist, or like, uh, I was going to do do-good work in the ghetto. That was my thing. So, I, I, uh, bingo parlor. We ran a bingo parlor for this community organization, and um, I made the, that short movie about that. And then I did this other one that was better, that I actually will show people, uh, called Hairway to the Stars. Which is that is, showing here? No, I didn't let him have it. <laughs> but, then I, but then I was like, oh, maybe I will let him have it. My office said it's too late. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, and, then I had a, and then I got a grant from the New York State Council for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts to make another short that was based on an idea that was sort of like what became Huckabee's many years later, which was about a guy in a Chinese restaurant 
who had a microphone on every table and he heard every personal conversation, then he would write fortunes that were like perversely personal, you know, forever. And, he, ended, and he, ended, he was like a very isolated, lonely guy, like I was in my 20s. Tw- I lived in a Chelsea, you know, studio apartment and I was like, I just went to work and I didn't have much of a social life. Um, and, uh, and then he was, got involved with a girl through that, you know, and I was like, I'm going to make this into a feature. I cannot do another short film. You know, I was like, I have to make a feature. So I spent, but then, you know, you know what that's like as a writer. You know, then like cut to two years later. You know, you're just like, oh, kill me now. You know, I was like trying to write it into a feature and it just wasn't working. So I, then I got put on jury duty, which is where I really started to learn how to write. You know, which is my non, my non, uh, you got to trick yourself into writing. You can do it now if you write it as an email or if, when it doesn't count. It's the, it doesn't count school of writing. That's and, when you can write. And so you're on jury duty and it didn't count? It didn't count. I was on jury duty, and uh, I wasn't at work, and it wasn't my official project that I'd been laboring over. It so this count. was the big project, but then you were making notes on spanking the monkey at jury duty. Mistress project, yeah. And then you know, and it was like just like a pornographic fantasy, you know. It was like a filthy, angry fantasy based on a summer when my mom had smashed up her car. My mom had a drinking problem, and she smashed up her car one summer, and. Um, and my dad was away a lot, and, you know, and, she, and then I kind of was stuck there. Kind of, I was painting houses. I was a house painter, and I was kind of taking care of her. And um, I just kind of spun that into some really sick you know, story. And then I was like, oh, that's such a good story. That just kind of tells itself. And, I said, and, I just, and, I, and I, at first I said, you can't tell that story. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to tell that story. Just do it for me. I'm just going to do it for was me. Was there a point where you were writing it as the thing that you were just doing for fun, then it became the thing that you are actually... Was there a point where like, oh, shit, I might make this or I have to show this to somebody? And When it was done, I thought it was good. Like, I th- knew it was the best thing I'd written. You know, there was just... That comes back to what we were saying before, when it's straight up and emotional and you can feel it. You know, that's the thing. So I just was like, this is good. This is, this is good. So I... And that got me, got me started. It got me an agent. It got me out of my day job. He got me my first writing job. With I got a writing job out of that. You know, so. Yeah. All right. So 19, and then uh, flirting with disaster is when around ninety five, ninety six. Okay. So your age, music with the obsession with the age. If you're ten years younger than me, you can get off on that, <laughs> like you are. All right, so let's see. Music. So ninety five, ninety five is about twenty five then, <laughs> and. Um, I uh, just got out of college and I didn't know what to do with myself. And I, oh, and then Spanking the Monkey won the Sundance Film Festival. And we were just happy just to go. You know, we made it with $80,000. I, I used the NEA money. Then the NEA money said, wait, this isn't the Chinese fortune cookie movie. This is a, this is a dirty incest movie. And we're politically on the rope. So I had to give the money back to them from the money I got paid from the Sundance Film Festival. Um, and... Uh, we didn't know if we were going to sell it at Sundance, you know? It was like kind of touch and go. But that was when the, that was just heating up. All that stuff was really heating up. It was the Clinton expansion, you know, the bubble we, came, we all came up on. And, and, uh, what, what, do you, what stuff was heating up? Well, the, the Sundance and, and, and Hollywood's interest in Sundance and um, Sundance becoming a market, you know, where you could sell a film was really and be discovered. had started really with, you know, uh, in the late 80s, but it was sort of gaining more momentum. And... Uh, we, 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 we won the audience award, you know, because it really played with audiences. And that was like, when it, like my baptism as a filmmaker to sit with 600 people and watch them watch my movie. And I remember, you know, part of it is when you start to learn this experience of how much the movie belongs to the audiences, you know, um, because there were things they would laugh at that I was like, that's not funny, you know. And then there were things that they wouldn't laugh at that I would say, well, that was supposed to be funny, 
Um, and every audience is different. Um, and then it was the lead in the New York Times story, and then I kind of, so it gave me some traction, and then, um, and my wife at the time, who was very smart, um, who was working at New Line Cinema, who she couldn't get them to make my movie Spanking the Monkey, even though she worked at a studio. And that was when I got to meet Faye Dunaway, the first movie star I ever got to make. They say, if you get Faye Dunaway to be the mother, we'll make Spanking the Monkey. So I went to Faye Dunaway's house, and she had like a 12-year-old son. And she said, I would make this movie, but I, I just think it'll be really too messed up for my son. And I tried to convince her that it would be good for her relationship with her son. <laughs> but it would make them conscious of what not to do. And uh, she laughed in my face. Um, anyway, so my wife smartly said, you better strike while the iron's hot, you know, because if you wait too long, and she turned out to be right, because there were a lot of great filmmakers that year who waited too long, like Rose Troach. Does anybody remember her, Rose Troach? She made a movie called Go Fish, which was like one of the first lesbian comedies, you know, and uh, it was a really good picture, and, you know, she waited, and you can kind of miss that opportunity, you know, when someone's going to try to finance your picture. So I, I wrote about what I was going through at the time, you know. Um, and after Spanking the Monkey, I wanted to make something that was more fun. So I said, I'm going to kind of... My sister was adopted, and she had just was going through finding her biological parents. And she had had a lot of misfires. You know, her father, her biological father turned out to be like kind of a, a mafia guy, you know, from the Philadelphia area. And as she approached him, it... Um, like, people were trying to scare her away. So she had, like, a lot of, like, weird, scary experiences where people were like, you better not come around here and, and she met some wrong people and, and so I had that material in my head I was flying I remember to visit her and um, and then I just had a baby um, and um, which kind of just like shattered my sex life and with my wife or our sex life I should say and um, and you know uh, <laughs> and uh, so I just kind of smashed those things up and um I was really into Woody Allen at the time of Husbands and Wives. So that was sort of my pitchfork, you know, for like... You know, and I always tell people not to worry about that too much because um, if you, you, know, you read about Bob Dylan or the Beatles, this is where I learned. I always thought, well, that's cheating. You can't write that way, you know? And, but that's how everybody writes. A lot of people write that way. Like Bob Dylan said, the way he writes all his songs is he has somebody else's song in his head all day. It could be a Roy Orbison song. It could be a Hank Williams song all day. He's talking to people. People think he's just talking to them, but he's really just listening to this song in his head. And at some point, he jumps off into his own thing. And then, that, and then John Lennon. John Lennon would say, you know, this was, oh, we thought we were doing a Roy Orbison song. And you kind of look at it and you're like, that doesn't really sound anything like a Roy Orbison song to me. So, so I was, Husbands and Wives was in my head and, you know, and kind of spanking them. I mean, not ironically, I guess, then Woody Allen loved the film and invited me to come meet him after that because he thought finally a filmmaker who was kind of, you know, ripping him off a little bit. Because um, <laughs> I remember he said Paul Anderson was ripping off Scorsese, and I think that he was happy somebody was finally going his way a little bit. <laughs> and what was that like to meet him? Oh, it was so exciting for me. You know, I remember I went to the set of um, Celebrity, I guess he was shooting. And I was really, every set to me had been, I wasn't like you, I didn't make a bunch of videos or commercials. And so I only got to be on a set like once every couple of years and it was a big deal. So I remember how, I just remember watching how uh, confident and comfortable he was on the set. You know, he just was like, 
walking around, talking to me, talking to me, talking to me, and then you go, yeah, yeah, Kenneth Branagh, yeah, you just do that, do that, do that, and then the camera goes over there. No, higher, higher. Yeah, so then you come back to talking to me, like that. And I was like, geez, he's so casual about it, you know? He was so confident and casual about it. And I remember I admired his corduroys. He had these uh, olive-colored corduroys that he always... And I said, are those your, I said, are those your lucky pants? And he said, yes, these are my lucky pants. <laughs> Um, so, I, uh, so that I guess. Oh, I'll tell you one other thing. You told me this funny. I asked him. I asked him. Uh, I asked him if he had ever uh, met Eleanor Roosevelt. Why? I don't know. I was asking him about famous people. I was asking about famous people, and he and he said he had never because he had some jokes about Eleanor Roosevelt in one of his movies, and he said he had never met Eleanor Roosevelt, but he had a friend who got locked out of his apartment um, in uh, naked. Like in the, when, in the early 60s when Eleanor Roosevelt was alive and he knocked on, had to ring her doorbell to get to, to and he rang her doorbell to get to ask for help and that she helped him. <laughs> and I liked that. She was probably like 90 years old at that point. <laughs> um, do you fetishize Eleanor Roosevelt? Is it... No. <laughs> um, okay, so Three Kings, what kind of person were you when you made that, and what kind of music were you listening to? Oh, yeah, we didn't do the music for Flirting with Disaster. Hmm. Do you want to go back to that? Mm, the music didn't really fit in there. They tried to make a soundtrack for that. I love the Squirrel Nut Zippers, which was a title track for that song, for that movie. They're a really interesting band. And I remember they tried to get me to, for a soundtrack, they tried to get Dr. John to re-record it. And so here I was in the studio with Dr. John, re-recording it, even though I loved the original more. And then, and then I said, I'm sorry, I've got to stick with the original. So I felt like I insulted Dr. John even after he recorded it. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, another funny thing about the score for Spanking the Monkey is this poor guy killed himself making a score and it didn't work for the movie. So on the mixing stage of the final mix... I made up a score with a, with a guitar player, like right there. I said, just go, dun, 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 like that to the guy, and that's, and that's what we used. And I said, I said, I said, <laughs> wow. That's amazing. And, and it, you know, it could be more dimensional, but you know, it gets by. The score gets by. So but, is the whole score just an acoustic guitar? Yeah. Wow. It's kind of a mandolin, I think, actually. I think it was a mandolin he used. That's it. So Flirting with Disaster, now with Three Kings. So after Three Kings, I really wanted to do after something. Flirting with after Flirting with Disaster, I wanted to do something. Uh, uh, I don't know. I kind of was like, I was kind of, I think, impressed by uh, Quentin Tarantino at the time. You know? And I think I was kind of interested in trying something that had some more octane to it. You know? I just wanted to try something different. And I wanted to do something that had some propulsiveness to it. Weirdly, I was researching a movie that turned out to be a lot like There Will Be Blood. I was researching a movie about a father and a son that at the beginning of the oil thing in the Oklahoma oil fields. And I went to Princeton University, and I met the history department at Princeton University, and I was like going to do this whole thing about the 20th century and what industrialization meant. And I ended up thinking that it was just arrogant to try to make a judgment about the 20th century, that I thought that that was kind of easy and... Um, kind of a cheap shot, you know, to say the technology and, you know, because for every bad thing it had done, you can name 20 good things it had done. So I, Is that the ratio? Well, maybe, maybe not. 
but it's maybe 10 for 10, okay. 9 for 10. I don't know, we could, we, could, we could actually, that would be a good experiment to try to actually figure that out. <laughs> so then I decided not to make that, and then I, what were you going to say? We could do it right now if we get our, our pie chart and use the audience as a, uh, to vote on it. Do you want to do that? That could, it could take like four hours. Does it, do you guys have that time? <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that next time. Okay. So then I went to, and then this is now, so now the studios said to me, please come make a movie here. And so Lorenzo... After did, flirting with the disaster, yeah. you had a lot of studios getting, wanting you to make movies? And they said, they showed me their script logs. I'd never seen a script log before. So they showed me the script log that had all these one-line summaries of movies, of scripts they had. It was like this thick. And one of them was like a, like a, a heist that took place in the Gulf War. And the Gulf War at that time was the only Gulf War and was the only recent war. And I felt like it had not really been examined. And when I kind of started researching it, I thought it was the first war that had color photographs that were in the newspaper, that had that weird saturated look. And I thought it was just a weird war, you know, that had all these weird unexamined things in it. And um, so I, I, I wrote that, I rewrote that. And, um, and also it was a, a member, it was a, it was, you you were going off to make a, 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 you know, the war movie, but you also were, wanted to really make a visual movie. You wanted to use the camera more and move the camera. And um, that was a, uh, and you, you know, the, the, the movie is incredibly visual with like the, the shootouts and the slow motion and the bullets going through the body. And um, what was the, the uh, was, what, what was the, was the, was the, was the motivation for that, for the material or the motivation was that was that part of picking the material was that you wanted to you know uh, use the camera more I think it was both it was like wanting to like uh, work on a bigger canvas and try something that was bigger something that was political because I had like I told you I was into the politics thing before and uh, and it was really great that I got to know you then you know we got to know each other through uh I was uh, helping to rewrite something that was going to be your, supposed to be your first movie. You want to tell them about that? That's right. Uh, that's how I met him. Was uh, after flirting with disaster. I was working on a script of Harold and the Purple Crayon, which is a children's book. I love the fight. It was great. I'm leaving, but that was a great. <laughs> yes, sir. What's your name? Sixto Ramos and Rosie Perez. Yes. Thank you for coming, you guys. Will you come down for a second? Come on, get us? down here. Come, <laughs> come down here. Why don't you come down here too? Oh my God, my Where's the boyfriend? See, listen, all you have to do is listen to her talk. All you have to do is listen to both of them. He's a white guy. The boyfriend's a white guy. A white guy. Listen, 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 listen. What I was saying where we started, that when you see some authentic people, and you're like, those are interesting characters that made me want to do the fighter. Here it is right here. Thank you, no, thank you for saying something. Let me tell you something, but I know you guys are a tough audience, so that means everything to me. And we were on a jury once, weren't we, for Sundance. You don't even remember it. I do. Oh. Right, right. Thank, right. you. Right. I love, thank you. I love. Thank you.
He used the actual comments heavy during the fight scene with Larry Merchant and Jim Lampley. Yeah, so that was awesome, the way you choreographed that and put that in. Thanks. Okay, goodbye. Thanks. Thanks for coming down. I think it's all downhill from here. That was pretty, that was pretty good. That was just the shot in the arm we needed. <laughs> Um, <laughs> What's going to happen now? <laughs> well, any more mints? Maybe we should any take more mints. Yeah, <laughs> right. Maybe we should do one. Do should we one take do. questions yeah, from the sure, audience? Sure. All right. Um, yes, ma'am. Can you guys hear that? Can you hear that? Okay. Uh, well, <clears throat> you know, I love Raging Bull, but we, we were certainly not going to do what he did. You know, I wouldn't even attempt to. And everything he did is the cameras inside the ring and very often inside the fighter. It's very often between the fighters. And Mark specifically uh, wanted to do something that was more real than that, which I thought was interesting. So I just meant, I knew it was more challenging to me as a filmmaker to make it um, intense when you're, everything's from outside the ring. You know, that, and so what we got saved by was how much footage we had. Because we had, we, had we had six HBO cameras, and then we had two free-floating cameras, so that's eight. And you just had to make sure when you were shooting, it was a little ADD with like eight monitors. You, know, you had to make, you just make sure certain shots you had were money. You know? And to me, the money shots were always the rougher ones that were like looking up into the lights or sort of messed up. And uh, the DP wanted to shoot with the original beta that they had used in 1990, which when you blew it up gave it a very rough look. And because we had 79 hours then. 79 of, hours of footage. Of fight footage, And you yeah. shot the fights in three days. Three days we did the fights, yeah. That's amazing. And uh, in those 79 hours, that was a very big task to then find, like that was kind of the bane of our existence in the editing room for a while. You'd be like, oh, well, that, that's the fight, there's the fight. You'd watch it and you'd go, well, that kind of sucks. You know, that kind of is like not very compelling. You know, so it took a lot of times before we whittled it down to where like that's that's intense, that's good. And was as, as Rosie said, using the announce the real announcing, uh, was that always the plan, or that this is something you discovered in the edit room? It was an editing room discovery. You know, I said, why don't we just cut and paste the actual commentary? Because it was hard to duplicate, especially in that middle fight, where they those guys were so bagging on Mickey, and then they had to eat their words. You know, so. That was that was a real thing. Cool. Um, any more? Qu- uh, yes, in the red shirt. Why did you end up at, in the movie with the two brothers on the couch as opposed to with Still right after the fight? Because he mm-hmm. thought that the movie was over, and then you had your good little conversation on the couch with the two brothers. Is there any reason for that? Uh, did you guys hear the question, everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Why'd you do that? <laughs> 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 I'll get it from him. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. The first ending is an ending I've seen before, you know, and I just sort of accepted that because I thought the movie itself was original enough that I was okay 
I thought they had earned their happy ending, you know, even though it was a little rockyish. Um, but the, I just fell in love with the found footage of them on the couch because we we did not have schedule time for those interviews, and uh, and they were all unscripted. Unscripted. We, I just would, they just would sit down and we would just I just threw questions at them and we do it between setups like in the middle of the night. I say just sit on the couch and I'm very proud that they were so comfortable. You know, that's the best thing I think an a, a director can be most proud of is if the set is com- so comfortable that the actors are so in character they're comfortable to do anything like that. Just say sit down in character. I'm going to throw questions at you, and um, it just seemed very fitting emotionally. It seemed like a knockout punch to me emotionally to see Dickie so humbled. And it was, and when Christian cried, that was unexpected. You know, it just happened. You know, I think he was so in character that he felt what it was like to give that over to his brother and to be happy for his brother but sad for himself. You know, all at the same time. Is that okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's like, because oh, I'll beat it out of him <laughs> if you need me to. <laughs> um, yes. Oh. <clears throat> well, yeah, we. So I was. I, I got him to come work on a script uh, with me, uh, and, the, and the movie didn't end up happening. But we became really good friends through that. And uh, it's a, um, is it a children's book. Do I, this is about your you. Oh. <laughs> All right. So I was. It was Harold and the Purple Crayon, which is an iconic kids book, which was that which was written by Crockett Johnson about a kid who just has a purple crayon and draws a world, and then he goes into that world, which is... Uh, and then... It, and, the, actually, and Maurice Sendak was producing that, and that's how I became friends with Maurice and ended up doing Where the Wild Things Are later. And uh, so in a way, a lot of the sort of... The momentum, or the sort of... Uh, the desire to, that I had for that movie became indirectly Where the Wild Things Are. Because Maurice Sendak kind of was responsible for the estate of Crockett Johnson, right? Yeah, overseeing. Yeah, he, he Crockett Johnson and his wife Ruth Krauss were very famous children's book authors in the '40s and '50s, and uh, they they were his mentors. They were they were sort of his mentors in the you know the '50s as he was sort of starting out illustrating. So we got to know each other. We became friends, and then when I was writing Three Kings. Um, I had him in mind, you know, to play that role. And the funny thing is that Christian Bale started telling the story that he told on Charlie Rose, which you can watch on Charlie Rose, which I really wasn't aware of, which, you know, any actor that, that trusts me, they remember those auditions, especially if they don't get the part. Why? Because, you know, they just remember when they went audition for you. You don't remember it because you saw 100 people, you know, but they were in there and they're, like, not happy, you know, and they, you know, their, their heart, you know. So he... He remembered it and he told the story. You know, he came up to me and I had no memory of it. You know, because I knew I was casting you, and I was kind of fighting Warner Brothers, saying, "No, he can do it. He can do it." I'd never acted in a movie before, and, and I was his friend, and so the studio was like, "What? Are you, what? You can't hire your friend that's never been in a movie before." He would come over to my house, and we I had to put him on tape to show them, and to get him to do it with his southern accent, and you know, it was just really he went for it really hard, and uh, I think he's great in the movie. Um, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, sir. Um, I'm a filmmaker, and I'm just interested in the, uh, what you were walking into, in, uh, into a movie that's uh, gone through a lot of directors' hands, and uh, a, good, a good actor that's a producer, too. Like, uh, what's the dynamics of that? I mean, your creative conversations, and, and just, you know, finding that common ground, and 
Yeah, can you guys hear that one? Um, he's saying, so uh, what was it like as a filmmaker to walk into a movie that so many filmmakers and had, had worked on and so many, it had been through so many drafts and it had been years that Mark Wahlberg produced it and he'd been developing it and it had gone through many incarnations and uh, so did, what was that like to walk into when it had already, when somebody else had already um, slept? With you know, it, it was before? different for me certainly because I had brought Mark scripts twice before. You know, I brought him Three Kings and I brought him Huckabee, so this was a case of him bringing me something that Darren Aronofsky had had. Um, I don't know. I think I had had a bumpy few years writing many things and sort of tying myself up in knots writing things. And, you know, you know that, that's a hard... That can happen, you know? So I was happy to have a simple thing that I saw how it could be done, you know? And I had a very clear take on it. And um, Mark is very loyal to me and very much a protector of me. So I knew that I wasn't coming in somewhere where I was not going to be able to do what I wanted to do. And I, I, that is the only way I know how to do things. You know, so I came in and I said, this is how I see it. This is how I want to do it. You know, and so the, you know, they just cleared the way out and, and, they, and they let me do that. Was the family your idea, you're saying? Well, the sisters and the mom and the, and the girlfriend being more prominent. Like they were there in the earlier versions, but they were like just sort of barely there. You know, they weren't, they weren't pivotal. Yeah. Yes, sir. Did, and is a real Dickie ever saying anything one way or the other? So you're, well, did, oh, that is a good did, did Does Dickie, the real Dickie, think that he knocked down Sugar Ray and did the character think he knocked down Sugar Ray versus slipping? You will never get an answer to that. In, in Lowell. I mean, I did a Q&A with Mickey Ward and, and he wouldn't answer it. Um, so it's very much a live topic, and when Christian answers it, like when you asked when you asked um, Mickey, what did he say? Well, well <laughs> it's hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, he might he might he might have knocked him down. He might have knocked him down. Yeah, sure. You know, I just like it's a very it's a very controversial thing. And he he uh, Christian gives his answer to Amy. He says, "Don't you think I know what really happened that day? I was in the ring," but he never says. You know, and I think his brother is acknowledging to him, even if you didn't, you went 10 rounds with Sugar Ray Leonard. And um, he was supposed to be a nothing fight for Sugar Ray Leonard, and he shocked Sugar Ray Leonard. And he'd had a hurt leg from a motorcycle accident. He limped into the um, press conference, and he still did the fight, Dickie. And he was drunk. During the and, fight he was drunk? Yeah. Wow. Sugar Ray Leonard smelled alcohol on his breath. And he still gave Sugar Ray Leonard a hard time. He was very gifted. He was born super gifted. But a lot of people who are born gifted don't appreciate it, and they blow it, you know? And uh, both of them will tell you, Mickey and Dickie will tell you that Dickie was born with Muhammad Ali-like talent, but, but he didn't have the heart or the persistence that his younger brother had. Uh, any other questions? Any more questions? Mom, do you have a question? Sandy's here? Yay. It's a personal oh. question. <laughs> okay, we'll come back to you, Mom. Um. <laughs> Sandy had to sit here and listen to me talk about my mother. You didn't know she was here? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so in the corner. Is Jim here? No. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite shots in the 
When, which shot is it? I'm sure now. For his date. For the date. Yes, I liked it. We were losing the light, and we had magic hour, and then it just kept getting darker, you know? And I still thought it looked very beautiful. You know, I still thought it looked beautiful. And as you get more confident as a filmmaker, I think you're, you know what you like is beautiful, and you also are okay with not seeing literally everything. Did it bother you? <laughs> Please, tell us how it bothered you. Are you guys film students? Is that what you? Yeah. Oh, cool. Where do you go to school? Uh, we, we went to cool. Awesome. I would never put a dark shot in my movies, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, in the beard. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll, I'll come back. Oh, sorry. Was, There's the, three guys with beards sitting together, <laughs> right? Okay, we're going to go uh, chronologically. Um, so age, with the, the age. He likes the age. The glasses thing. and beard first. In preparing, did you watch other boxing movies, and how did you did you feel constrained at all by the genre of boxing movies? Absolutely not. I uh, feel like I have Raging Bull or Rocky sort of in my hard drive, and I did not need to look at them again. And I knew I was not going to do what they did, so you don't want to look. You don't want to look at those. And no, I did not feel constrained by that. The only thing I felt a little constrained by was that I knew that we ended with this happy ending, like I said. But I felt like that was earned from a character point of view. So to me, it's almost like the movie climax is on Charlene's porch. It's almost like that's sort of the ending of the movie. And then the rest is sort of gravy, but I feel like they earned it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you get to see them be together. So that's what I, and I couldn't think the of climax another. is on the porch when um, Dickie comes to apologize. To, yeah. yeah. That's a good scene. That's good. Um, okay, so with the beard. <laughs> Sorry, you can't but, say the guy with the beard. Yeah, beard, no hat. Okay. <laughs> How long was the prep time with Mark and Christian before you started shooting? About three, four weeks. At rehearsals? Yeah. And also Mark had been training for four years at this point as a boxer and, and sort of learning those fights. I, I'm going to speak for Mark since he's not here. And since you're not actually speaking for him. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to defend his honor here. <laughs> no, he, he, he said he'd, uh, he'd been studying those fights and, and studying boxing for four years before the movie. And uh, um, do you have anything to add? <laughs> okay, the, the, the beard and, and a hat. <laughs> That is the actual title. If you go on YouTube, you'll find High on Crack Street. Yeah. Um, 
Could you hear guys hear that one? Uh, the, the, the documentary High on Crack Street, the real one, if he watched that and if that shaped the, the writing of the movie and the directing of the movie. I grabbed on to that. That was another thing I changed. Because I thought, what a great thing. You know, you have this documentary that really changed this community. And with those two ladies that we interview, like when they go, it's terrible what Dickie did. He set our town back. I don't know if you remember those two ladies. That was the mayor and the town manager of Lowell. And that is how they felt about High and Crack Street. And that, it was a shadow that hung over that town until now. And this film kind of removes the stigma of that. So I thought, what a great device. Even, even after Mickey went and became world champion, champion? Even after he won the championship, there was still this stink of like the crime and that, that had been so notorious on an HBO, you know? Um, so we have one more question. Um, I think we should go all the way in the back. Since, uh... Go to your mom. She had a question. Oh, okay, mom. So my mom said that she listened to Fresh Air <laughs> with, with David Russell and, uh, and that she got to know him better and she got to see how much he, could, he identified with such, so many diverse people and as a writer, how he, and a director, he could put himself in the shoes of all these very different people and identify with them and humanize them. And uh, what is it about you that, and, that <clears throat> enables you to do that? Or? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I think you're very I'll answer it Um, (laughs) I think he's a very present person and when he's with people he's very present and he he's very open and he he uh, he's got one of the the most genuine laughs he he really sees humor everywhere and a lot of times he makes me feel a lot funnier than I think I am because he laughs at things that I don't think are that funny but he sees some little weird idiosyncratic thing in the way I might have said it or something and uh, he genuinely is uh, just a very open person, and um, you know I have incredible conversations with him about everything. And uh, I think he has that ability with with pretty much everyone he meets, wherever they're from, and whatever they do. Um, but uh, so, anyways, I guess it's a good way to end. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, David. Yeah, I'm very happy so to be here thank for you. you. So much. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.